Many years ago, my parents went on um, a vacation, and they asked me to check on, like, water their plants and check on their house over and over. And I uh, went over, they were gone for like two weeks, and I, I, about a week after they had been gone, I, I walk in their house, I open the door, and plants were like turned over. There was like the soil of the plants, and things seemed all out of order in their kitchen. And I was like, did they get robbed? Like, what's going on here? And as I walked towards the family room, this, this little squirrel went and shot right by me and went up their, their chimney and their fireplace. The flu must have been open, and that's how the little guy got in and out. And so I cleaned up and told my parents what had happened after they got home. And about three weeks later, they all of a sudden had this infestation of flies in their house. So they brought out somebody to check it out, and the little guy had died up inside of their fireplace, and he was like rotting, and I thought, oh, he, he didn't get rescued, <laughs> that little guy. That rescue mission was, was a failed attempt. And as I was thinking about that, I, I looked up like some of the most famous rescue missions that have happened recently or in the last hundred years or so. In early World War II, there was a U.S. submarine called the U.S. Squalus, and it sank, and it went, it hit something, water comes into the submarine, and it sank immediately down 260 feet to the bottom of the ocean. Immediately, 26 sailors died. But then they sent Navy divers with this new techniques or whatever, search and rescue techniques, and they went down and they were able to rescue uh, the rest of the remaining sailors, there was 33 that were saved. How about Apollo 13? An explosion in the spacecraft 200,000 miles from the earth. They thought there's no way they were going to make it home, and yet NASA was able to, to, to guide them and navigate them to where they landed in the ocean, and, and they, they lived. There was uh, the, in a Japanese prison during World War II, there was... 500 American POWs were rescued by army rangers. This is just an amazing rescue mission. And then in 1956, I did not know this, there was a ship, a luxury ship, a lot like the Titanic, called the Andrea Doria. And it hit something and began to sink. And there was 1,660 passengers on the, the ship and only 46 perished. So that's a pretty good rescue mission there. But this morning, we're going to talk about the greatest rescue mission ever. And it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He rescues humanity. And he comes and, and through his life, through his death, and resurrection. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission, was to come and seek and save us who are lost in our selfishness and our, our sins. And this is, today is kicking off the final series as we've been trekking through the Old Testament. We're calling this one Longing for Jesus. And we're going to take the next few weeks up till Christmas and look at the major prophecies about Jesus in the prophets. Jesus said over and over that he came to fulfill uh, that, which, that which was written about him in the law and the prophets in the Psalms. So as we 
have this vantage point of looking back in history, the prophets were looking forward to. Israel was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Unfortunately, when he came, many, many, many missed his coming. And I don't want us to get caught up in the things of the world or the ways of the world and miss Jesus and who he is for each one of us in his rescue mission. Today, we're going to unpack Isaiah 53, and we're going to sing about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to sing about it, and then we're going to take communion. Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Jesus came to fulfill that. So let this be a faith builder to you. In, in the 1940s in Israel near the Dead Sea in a place called Qumran, the caves of Qumran, there were some shepherd boys that were thought they had lost some of their sheep and that, that these sheep might have gone up into these caves. So they picked up rocks and they began to throw it up into the cave to maybe startle the sheep out of the, the caves. When they threw a rock up one time, they heard this shatter, and they knew it was some kind of pottery or whatever. And so they, they went up and they, they found what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were copies and manuscripts of the Old Testament, Isaiah in particularly, Habakkuk the prophet, and it was dated 700 years before Jesus. And that should make us really trust the Word of God. Like we're talking about something historic. There's a picture. Um, that's in the Dead Sea Scrolls of Isaiah 53. And so that's dated 700 years before Jesus even walked the earth. So we're, we have some mind-boggling uh, things that we're building our faith on that's not, that are factual and that, that we, can, we can trust. So what I want to do first is talk about how Isaiah 53 talks about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. Jesus had a humble yet miraculous birth, right? He was humble, but it was miraculous. The incarnation of Jesus is what we celebrate at Christmas the incarnation is so important to our faith to understand that God became one of us. He wasn't a superhero or a phantom. He was literal flesh and blood just like you and I, having a body. Uh, a guy named Athanasius, early church father, a few hundred years after Jesus, he uh, was instrumental in a lot of the early creeds and the doctrine of the Trinity and, and the deity of Jesus. Athanasius wrote a little book called On the Incarnation. And here's the way the early church saw God in the gospel. I think it's a little different than sometimes we see it in the West. But Athanasius said, what was a good God to do as he watched his creation perish into nothingness? Yet but send his own son. God sends his son to come be one of us in the incarnation. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53, who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In John chapter 12, verse 38, it says that though Jesus performed many miracles, they still didn't believe in him. And it says this was to fulfill the prophet Isaiah. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You see that over and over. This was to fulfill the words of the prophets. Now, a, a 
statistician, scientist, is that a right thing? <laughs> he came up with, in his math, the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies about Jesus. And, you know, there are many more that Jesus fulfilled, but just eight of them is one in 10 to the 17th power. It's 100 quadrillion. That's a lot of zeros right there. Like, and that's the odds of, of fulfilling just eight of the prophecies about Jesus. Yet there's numerous. Now, he went on to give this illustration, and I, I may have shared this before. I think I have. But he said the, to get a mental picture of what those odds are, those z- numbers of zeros, is if you could cover the state of Texas, anybody from Texas? No Texans in our church at all. Okay. Anybody from Westminster? <laughs> Good. I'm in the right place. If you could cover the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet high, so two feet high, the state of Texas, and you took one of those silver dollars and you painted it red, and you took a man and you blindfolded him and you randomly dropped him in the state of Texas, and he finds that red silver dollar. That's the odds of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies, and yet Jesus did that. So that we can be confident in the scriptures and we can be confident in Jesus. Let that build your faith. Goes on in verse two. He grew up before him like a young plant. We're talking about the life of Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. Jesus came humbly. I remember years ago being at like the family Christian store, and there was a, a painting of Jesus holding a little lamb. I don't, anybody ever see the little one? Maybe there's more than one. But whoever painted that painting of Jesus it put Kevin, young Kevin Costner's face in Jesus. I kid you not, because we, we want to see Jesus as this perfectly handsome to what you know, we look outwardly appearance and yet tells us in the scriptures that he wasn't, he, walking down the street, he wasn't much to look at. You didn't go, whoa, he came so humble because God's about the heart. He's not about the outward stuff. He's about what's going on inside of us. He grew up. Luke t- records that, at, you know, Jesus at 12 years old was in the temple blowing the minds of the teachers and his knowledge and wisdom that he had regarding the scriptures and life. And then we don't hear, we don't hear anything, at least in the recorded gospels, about the life of Jesus from 12 until his baptism when he was 30. But he had to grow up. He made himself vulnerable to the elements. He had to have his little diaper changed. If he ate garlic, he had bad breath. I mean, he was human all the way through. And he, he's humble about that. And then it's, this is where it gets hard. He was despised, verse 3, and rejected by men. Not his father, but rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. If you've ever been rejected or you struggle with that, Jesus understands rejection. He was rejected in every way, only a few 
Even his own disciples took the resurrection for them to fully understand. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Skip over to verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They were rejecting the light of the world. And to, to walk in darkness from an understanding biblically is it's believing that God's out there somewhere and he's disinterested in you. Jesus said he's the light of the world. Whoever follows him will never walk in the darkness. Darkness, light illuminates the darkness and makes you be able to see. Jesus gives that metaphor over and over and over. So to walk in, in darkness is, is to be my own boss. It's to call my own shots. Think I, I can determine what's right and wrong and, and good and evil rather than looking to, to God to be the source of that. As we continue, and, and we're going to hear you know, about Jesus coming into this world you know, this whole month and celebrate the birth of Jesus, let's take a moment in this song we're going to sing that's called Light of the World. And would you allow the Holy Spirit to just shine his light on any part of our minds or our hearts where we're allowing darkness to hang out and just let his light shine in and give you hope and a fresh um, understanding and awareness of his presence. Tears of a mother, a 
baby's cry is the sound of love come down come down Twenty times in the four Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to have to suffer and die at the hands of sinful men, at least 20-something times. And the evil one in the kingdom of darkness thought, if we can kill the Messiah, then we'll win. If we kill him, we got him. And they were, the kingdom of darkness was poisoning the minds of the, of the religious and the Romans to plot the death of Jesus. And Israel was waiting for their Messiah. And that's why people were freaked out when Jesus died on the cross. But he told them if they would have just listened, he said it 20 times. Uh, Janelle probably thinks she has to tell me things 20 times before I'm actually going to get it too, I guess. But what happened is a great reversal happened. What they thought they were doing in killing Jesus, they were actually winning the victory for us in the death of Jesus as he submitted himself 
to death. So let's look how Isaiah 53 continues now. It goes right from the life of Jesus to the death of Jesus. Surely our griefs he himself bore. This is a picture of Jesus on the cross. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Transgression means sin. It's, it's a, a failure to hit the mark that God has put out for us, his standard, his, his ways. And, and never forget this. Whatever God tells us to do or not to do is always out of love and out of a good God's heart for our best interest. So when he tells us to do something or not to do it, it's because he wants what's best for us. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities is a little bit different than sin in the sense that iniquity is humanity rejecting God and God's ways and and determining good and evil and right and wrong for ourselves. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging or wounds we are healed. All of us, say that with me, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open its, his mouth. First Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter writes about this very passage and how while Jesus was on the cross being humiliated and, and all of that and, and all the pain, he, he tells his audience that he did not retaliate, but he left himself to the goodness of his father, to the sovereignty of his father. I mean, no, not retaliating, especially if it's, you haven't done anything wrong and somebody accuses you of something you didn't do. That's, that's when we probably want to retaliate the most. Jesus is our example. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That's an interesting passage, that he was, he was uh, with a rich man in his death. If you read all four gospel accounts, after Jesus' body was taken off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who it says, was a rich man, he got the tomb for Jesus, gave him a tomb. So a rich man participated in the burial of Jesus, prophesied 700 years before it happened. I mean, every time I read this stuff, it's just like, wow, you can't make this up. This is not a legend or any kind of just wishful thinking. This is what happened. But the Lord, verse 10, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. I think it's important that we recognize that, and this might stretch your theology of what you've been taught a lot of your life, but the father did not sacrifice his son. He's not into child sacrifice. You see that in the Old Testament. Jesus willingly laid his life down. He says, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. The father was with the son all the way through his agony. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God the Father was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. The Father's always with the Son. You can't rip them apart. And you might be thinking, well, didn't he say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did say that. But we stop there. That's verse 1 of Psalm 22. You got to keep reading the psalm. And when Jesus uttered those words, the people walking by would have heard the rest of the song. I'm a terrible singer, but I'm going to demonstrate something for you, okay? And I want you to sing the second line to this, okay? Don't stop believing. Hey, I did it. I did it. Now, you've heard that song enough where you know what the next line is. And should I be on the worship team? Just kidding. Um, keep. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when you continue to read Psalm 22, even though in the agony of his humanity, God, where are you? As I'm in the pit of Adam's fall, where are you? What's going on? You keep reading and it says, you will raise me up. You are with me. You'll never forsake me. You read that in the Psalm. So Jesus was actually, you know, knowing father to you, I give my spirit. I mean, he, he wasn't separated from his father and he gave us through his death and his submission to death, gave us victory over our enemies, the enemies of sin, death, and the evil one. We're going to sing, stand up again. <laughs> We're going to sing, raise a hallelujah. And let's raise a hallelujah to what Jesus did as we get ready to talk about his resurrection. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my
As I said before the talking about the death of Jesus prophesied in this chapter, over 20 times in the Gospels, Jesus said that he was going to have to die and suffer at the hands of sinful men. But he also would always say, and on the three days later, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise. And as Andy Stanley has coined this little phrase, he said, if a man can predict his death and say he's going to rise three days later and pulls it off, I'm going to go with whatever that man says. And I'm with, I'm, that's me. He, the, the, the fact of the resurrection is so, so cornerstone to our life and to our faith. Let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus prophesied here in Isaiah 53. It says, He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Last week I talked about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. All the pain, all the suffering, he had the vision to look beyond all that to see you and me. You're his joy. <laughs> Think about that. He was looking ahead and seeing you seeing your salvation being secured by his death and then resurrection and his full submission to his father it says therefore i will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels God, he did that for this rebel. And he did it for you, rebels, <laughs> too. Because we're all born rebels. We're all born with the propensity to want to do our lives our way and God stay out of it. When Jesus was on the cross, if you remember, he was, his cross was in between two rebels, two criminals. And you kind of see these metaphors play out a little bit on the three crosses that we look at in the Gospels. The, the first would be the, the cross of rebellion. And at first, the first two criminals that were nailed to the crosses to his left and to his right hurled insults at Jesus. You see recorded in, in the book of Matthew, they hurled their insults. Hey, he saved others, he can't save himself, etc. And then the next cross is the cross of repentance, where one of the thieves began to see Jesus, that there was something different about this guy, that he didn't do anything to deserve to be hanging from a cross. And something was happening in his heart and in his mind. And as the other criminal hurled more insults at Jesus, he told him, stop. We're up here because we're guilty. This man's done nothing. And then he says, will you remember me? Um, will you remember me in your kingdom? And you know the famous words, Jesus says, assuredly, you will be with me today in paradise. He didn't have time to join a church, pray a prayer, fill out a connection card, or do, give money or do anything. He simply said, will you remember me? And the king said, assuredly, you'll be with me in paradise. But then in the middle, we have the cross of redemption of our Lord 
who willingly laid down his life and then let, let the Father raise him up three days later to give us hope and a, and a new life, a fresh outlook on the future. The resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact is the cornerstone of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to read about the resurrection, the Apostle Paul has incredible insight, in both, insight into both the resurrection of Jesus and into our resurrection one day and the hope that we're building on. He says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins. He says, if, 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 if there is no resurrection, then we're, our faith is nothing. It's futile. But there is been, has been a resurrection. And here's, here's some good news. Here's one, another one of those faith building points. You can trust the word of God. You see the prophecies of Jesus unfold. When pa, the Apostle Paul penned his letter to the church at Corinth, it was only about 20 years after Jesus and the apostles. So 20 years ago, you know, if you're old enough, you remember 9-11 like it was yesterday. My kids are all now in their early 20s. I remember the days of their birth. I could rehash everything about what happened, what time they were born, all these things. So 20 years is no time for a legend to happen. That's my point, to make stuff up. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to Peter, to James, to the apostles, and to over 500 people. 500 people witnessed the resurrected Christ. 500 witnesses in a court case is a slam dunk case. I mean, 500 people. Your faith is built on solid ground. You need to know that and anchor in to the reality that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as prophesied in this amazing chapter secures our eternity. Our job is to believe it. Our job is to, to accept his acceptance of us, to come into agreement with Jesus. You don't make him Lord. You don't make him Savior. He's already those things. You agree with him. Jesus, you're my Savior. You're my Lord. You're my Savior in whom I trust. You're my Lord in whom I'm going to follow, and I want to build my life on you. Let's move from, from just being believers to followers, to doers that do the things that Jesus says to do. That word in the Greek for believing is more than just an, an assent in my mind or head knowledge. It's an everyday way of life. Jesus, I want to live my life modeling after you and putting into practice what you said to do. And the commands of Jesus are simple. He summarized it with the word love. Everything Jesus asks of us to do is that question of what does love require of me in any given situation. So as a disciple of Jesus, as we're going towards a new year, let's anchor into following Jesus in our relationships, how we work, how we speak, how we repent. Being a follower of Jesus makes you have to say sorry a lot and ask for forgiveness. I mean, I, I, I do it daily. I did it this morning and, and with, with Janelle, and just, it's easy, you feel late or whatever, and you get snappy, and I'm like, honey, I'm so sorry. And th that's what I'm talking about. It's like, you say sorry, you ask for forgiveness. You give forgiveness. This is what disciples of Jesus do. We're going to move into communion. 
And if you've never agreed with Jesus that He's Lord and Savior, do that before you come and get the elements. This is a sacred thing that we do when we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He said to do this in remembrance of Him. So the worship team is going to sing a new song that is all about Isaiah 53. And I want you to, to move forward, grab your communion elements, and then go back to your seat. We'll sing this song, and then we'll take it together.
Sometimes I think about Jesus's, you know, he's, he's born and he begins to be taught by his parents who he was, his miraculous birth, uh, the visitation of the angels. And then he begins to read the scriptures and see himself in there. And there was a process that happened in his humanity to him understanding that and things being revealed. It's fascinating to me. But when you hold these communion elements in your hand, you're holding love demonstrated. Love that is demonstrated through his submission on our behalf to death. For God so loved you, he gave his one and only son, that whoever will believe will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's hold on to that today. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread with his disciples and he broke it and he lifted it to heaven and he blessed it. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. He said, do it in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and he lifted it to heaven and he blessed it. He told his disciples, this represents my blood that is shed for you, the blood of the new covenant, to end all the sacrificial system, the sacrifice of all sacrifices for us, to live and, and walk in his freedom without shame and guilt but learning to walk in love and hope and be vessels of his love, his hands and feet in a broken world that needs that. Let's remember what he did for us. Would you just, you got communion stuff in your hands. Will you just put your hands out in front of you as a way of receiving a blessing this morning? May God bless each one of you with an awareness of his presence, an awareness of his victory, an awareness of hope, an awareness of the Father's amazing love, the Son's amazing grace and the communion that you have 24-7 with the Holy Spirit. May you experience the Holy Spirit's leading this week, fresh and new, a fresh infilling of His presence and joy. May the fruit of the Spirit be ripe in your lives, in our lives. And Lord, we go from here this morning thanking you so much for an ancient passage of scripture that tells us so much about your son and what he's done for us. So Lord, now we just look in anticipation for your coming again one day to set up your kingdom here on this earth with no sin or sickness or sorrow or disease or any of this stuff. Lord, that's our hope. Help us to love one another well in this community. 
I thank you, Lord, for this church. I thank you for the people that make this church. Thank you for all the relationships, the friendships. Lord, we want to obey your command, to, to love you and to love one another with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.